This episode of Super Pulp Science is brought to you by The Beautiful Ones by Silvia Moreno-Garcia, a novel of manners, romance, and telekinesis, available at Chapters or your favorite independent store. Attention, citizens. It's time for Super Pulp Science. This is Super Pulp Science, where we talk about how genre gets made. And I'm here with my very special guest, who will say her name much better than I ever could. <laughs> Silvia Moreno-Garcia. There you go. Silvia is here. and um, Hi, she, Silvia. This, Justin is also here, my long-suffering co-host. We... Um, we are calling from snowy Winnipeg to rainy Vancouver today to talk to you about a couple of different things. One of them, something came up in a recent podcast that we did about having two and a half jobs and how when you're a creative person, when you're a writer or when you're an illustrator or when you're uh, uh, someone that tries to make up stuff for a living, you often find yourself having two and a half jobs. Are you a two and a half jobs person? Um, I'm lucky enough that I have a full time job, so I don't really have to juggle that as much as other people do. I think. So you have a full time job, but you also are a um, prolific author, and you edit people's fiction collections, and you are a Twitter warrior. You don't consider those other creative pursuits one of your jobs? Well, the thing is, I think it's different when you're not a when you're not like afraid for rent money kind of thing, uh, you know, I, I, I think it's different. So I'm not, I'm not afraid of not being able to pay the rent every month. Um, it, and I think it's different because a lot of writers who are full-time writers, they have to be freelancing. So they're seeing if they can sell enough articles, if they can teach enough classes, if they can you know, do enough freelance work of any type, uh, wait tables. <laughs> In, in order to pay the rent. So in that sense, I, I think I'm, a, I'm in a lot more stable position. So yeah, on the side, I, I, I write and I edit and I do these other things, but but they can be things that I I can leave or do if, if I like. I, I have the luxury of that, whereas other people, they have to write a story about the potato festival because that's gonna pay the bills. Right, so you avoid stories related to potato festivals. That's right. <laughs> you have that freedom. You don't uh, begrudge a day job. Your advice to people is that if you can get a day job that you like, get it? Yes, that would be my advice. If you can get a day job that is uh, pays well or has good benefits and and is not so exhausting that you can't do anything else, I would say having a day job is, is a good thing. So I have to ask you an, a very Honest, difficult question here, Sylvia. Have I done a bad thing by leaving my wonderful day job, <laughs> which I both enjoyed immensely and paid well? Well, you know, the the other the downside of, of the day job is that um, you can't be physically attending as many events and things, right? Because most day jobs wonder if you disappear every month, where have you gone, right? Um, so I think that is one of the downsides. If you are um, in in a kind of creative field where it does require a bunch of travel, and I know musicians might be in that position, and maybe uh, comic book artists and illustrators, where you where to make contacts and sell your product, you're having to go to conventions or different cities regularly. Then a day job becomes 
I think becomes much more difficult. You have to have one that is, I guess, part-time and maybe flexible and understanding enough to know that you're going to be going to, to cons on, on a regular basis. I don't do cons on a regular basis. So that's, you know, so maybe that's why I don't mind the day job, but I think there's less, uh, less, um, convention um, opportunities for for writers of science fiction and, and fantasy. I mean, there are a lot of conventions, but they don't benefit you as much as other types of artists. So you don't like you you don't really sell books at conventions as as much as artists sell paintings or illustrations for comic book volumes. Oh, both Justin and I, I think, have questions that brewed out of that statement. I'm going to ask <laughs> Justin something first. How did you know when it was time to leave your – you also had a job that you liked that you were good at that paid well and did good yeah, things. Yeah. Um, you burned that all down, and now you're here. <laughs> Prior to, to doing this full-time, um, I was full-time at uh, uh, Complex Games, which is a uh, an iOS um, game development studio in the city here, and it was – it was a big company. Uh, when I was there, it was around forty-five to fifty people. We were kind of we were still growing, and I was doing illustration and graphic design full time. Which, um, like, I was a concept artist at a video game company. It was kind of like lifelong dream came true. Ten-year-old you was very proud of. Was you. very proud, yeah. Um, but on the side, yeah, I was starting to to do comic cons, and my own work was starting to get more and more of a traction. And then eventually I kind of realized, like it kind of hit me, like snuck up on me almost that um, what was happening at conventions and with freelance with my own stuff was not only competing with my time, but now it was like competing with my wage. Like I was doing well enough that I could actually consider quitting my job and putting more effort into that. And that like up and like that never occurred to me until it suddenly occurred to me that all those things had lined up like I was financially stable without my full-time job and like that just nobody ever told me that could happen right so it surprised me I think <laughs> so we're uh, we're on a uh, things tend to fall into degrees I think not categories and so if I think about the degree that the three of us are in right Justin is uh, uh, he has no children he has no wife he has he has a cute dog that hangs out in the studio here with us and a uh, uh, loving girlfriend who is in uh, law school. So she's, so she's busy busier than I am for the most part. Which right. Uh, I have uh, two children and I make up stuff full time. And you, Sylvia, have how many children? Two. You have two children. I imagined you having three. You have a fictitious third child or maybe one more is coming. I'm not sure. Um, and you have a day job. And you have a prolific writing career. So on this category, or on, on this um, spectrum, I can see why you would feel that you don't want to travel a lot for shows, right? Where I feel like I can travel a little bit for shows, and where yeah. Justin thinks that anytime there's a cheap flight, he should fly to a warmer climate and sell things. I'm well aware that, yeah, I won't be able to do this forever. Um, but I wanted to ask, like, so... Back when you, Greg, had the full-time job of teaching and you have kids and a wife, what was your relationship with traveling to shows before you started doing this full-time, back when you were teaching and, and being a parent and husband? 
See, during those days, that's when I met Sylvia. So Sylvia and I met eight years ago at KeyCon 30, which is a science fiction convention here in Winnipeg. And um, it was a Lovecraft-themed event. And what you, dear listeners, might not know about Sylvia is that she's one of Canada's foremost um, scholars on H.P. Lovecraft, oh. horror author. We're going to pick on you for that in a minute, Sylvia. Um, but... I was doing about five to eight shows a year. That's um, a lot. And about four of those were away shows. And it was just to the absolute limit of what was possible with the time off you're allowed as a full-time classroom teacher. You know, I'd have to move around extracurricular days and I'd have to like, you know. How those conversations go? Hey, uh, principal, I need to leave to go to... The Calgary Comic Con next weekend. Yeah, no, th- those. Okay, well, <laughs> uh, I had a wonderfully supportive um, administration that understood that teachers who also do things in the world have valuable experience to bring back for their students. But I also signed a contract that means I can't turn the. Uh, you know, you're not allowed as a as a contract teacher to turn your classroom into a marketplace so from the students i kind of had to keep it secret that i had this secret other life making books couldn't really keep it secret but you could never sort of talk about it openly but i could talk about the experiences of other people when i returned so when i would meet someone really clever and interesting like sylvia out in the world i would come back and talk about their trajectory rather than my own as far as the classroom went so that experience was viewed as valuable. I know what's real. I know what I am. And nobody pulls my strings. Tell us about H.P. Lovecraft. <laughs> what do you want to know about H.P. Lovecraft? There's a lot we can talk about um, regarding H.P. Lovecraft. I want to talk about the first time you read a sentence ever written by Howard Philip Lovecraft. That was a really long time ago. I was a kid. I was probably about 11 or 12 years old um, when I read Lovecraft for the first time. And I think it's very common for people who really like Lovecraft to say that they first read him when they were teenagers and that's when they got hooked. Uh, Because there's this feeling of alienation that comes through in his stories, which probably appeals a lot to young people. And at any rate, that's that's the point where where I kind of met him. I had read Edgar, Edgar Allan Poe, and, uh, and I liked it. And then so I asked my mother if there was anybody else who wrote stuff like Poe. And she said, yeah, there's this other guy called um, H.P. Lovecraft. And she gave me a, uh, like a book that had one of his stories. And the story that it had was called The Outsider. And I read it, and I really liked it. And so then I started looking for for stuff by him, and I read a bunch of his stories. And I read the biography that was available at the time about him, and now there's more biographies, but there was a biography about him, which I read. And, yeah, so that continued all throughout, um, uh, throughout, my, throughout my teenage years. And, uh, and in school, I, I had... Um, on my bench, we, I wrote it on my bench with like a marker or whatever. I wrote like Cthulhu and Nyarlathotep and, you know, <laughs> characters from, from that. Hold on. You were doing 
Cthulhu graffiti at your school? Yes, yes, I was. Um, and it was weird because nobody knew what it was in Mexico. Um, it was kind of this um, underground cult thing still back then. I mean, this was the 90s, but, uh, but the internet was just kind of like starting to take off. So this was the kind of thing you had to go to bookstores and talk to people to find more about it. Um, it was really a word of mouth and, and kind of physical presence treasure hunt sort of thing. So yeah, so I, I, so I wrote that with marker on my chair and, and what happened was that my classmates thought, um, they said it was satanical. Of course. (laughs) So, so everybody kind of like stared at me with fear in in their (laughs) eyes, which suited me well because I just wanted kind of to be left alone and not bothered and, and bullied. And, and it's, it's oddly enough, you don't get bullied when people, think that you're a Satanist. <laughs> okay, well, hold on. I want to unpack this a little bit. So H.P. Lovecraft wrote these stories about elder gods whose uh, followers would invoke them for various protections that eventually led to madness. Then along comes little Sylvia, who invokes these elder gods for protection. <laughs> um, has it led to a type of madness about Lovecraft for you? Uh, no, but it did lead to a really long um, interest in him, which culminated in me getting a master's degree in science and technology studies and doing a thesis, uh, which was, which partially had to do with Lovecraft. So yes, it was madness. Yeah, so it sent me on an academic quest in a way, and and I edited um, a bunch of anthologies that are um, adjacent or directly inspired by 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 Lovecraft. So it just kind of branched out from reading into actually making anthologies and and doing scholarly studies. So this dream quest of unknown Lovecraft, it's um, shaped some of what you've been doing as a writer, like in your own work? I think it got me interested in weird fiction as a concept. Uh, But weird fiction is broader than than Lovecraft, of course, and and so then it was kind of like a starting point, both for pulp fiction, um, because it his stories appeared in weird tales. So I started reading pulp fiction from the thirties and and the forties, and that got me reading other things like uh, more straight on science fiction that did not have horror elements. And on the other hand, it branched into um, an interest in weird in weird fiction, which is kind of like this chasier, uh, blurrier fiction that that kind of kind of occupies this odd space. And, and so it got me interested in reading that. And, and then eventually that got me interested in writing some of that. Um, so yeah, it, it, it was kind of like this starter, this starter drug. The literati tends to use $5 words for more pointed ideas. Um, so there's this, you know, this notion of speculative fiction. I bandy it about and other people do. Do you think really people are just ashamed to say weird fiction these days? No, I, I think, you know, there's all these questions about what is weird fiction and, and trying to define it. Uh, um, I think speculative fiction is a broader uh, thing. It kind of like would encompass almost anything from uh, Conan the Barbarian to like, you know, the Latin American magic realist writers. So it's this really huge umbrella that kind of takes everything and puts it together. And weird fiction, I think, would be like a smaller cluster 
of things that kind of are are like uh, it's not necessarily horror, but it's but um, but it's not necessarily magic realism, and and it just kind of fluctuates between uh, kind of these two states, these two these two states of matter. So speculative fiction is just I think really useful for when you want to talk about kind of everything uh, that is unreal in in one way without saying unreal fiction, which sounds a little bit odd. Unreal fiction. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think we should coin that Fiction, phrase. fiction. Yeah. Yeah, fiction, fiction. The rise of Cthulhu from another dimension brings about 3,000 years of darkness, Tom. Why are we obsessed with tentacles? <laughs> That's what I want to know. Um, I think because they're, um, they're easy to get stock imagery out of them. It's true. I do like my <laughs> tentacle stock imagery. But wh why, though? Let's be serious now for a minute. When we dig down, you write... Um, your most recent book, though, did not have tentacles in it. Tell us about that book, and then I'll segue back into tentacles after. Thank God. Yeah. <laughs> My latest novel is called The Beautiful Ones, and um, it's basically a novel of manners with a fantastic element, and, and the fantastic element is that there's um, some people who have telekinetic abilities. So some critics have described it as dangerous liaisons, with force users or a Jane Austen novel with, you know, like meets carry kind of thing, but it's not a violent thing at all. It's a romance uh, and it's very much a novel of manners. And so it's a very elegant state kind of product. <laughs> Do you think it falls into the category of weird fiction? Not at all. No, it falls under the general umbrella of speculative fiction. Speculative fiction. So, what is the what's the ingredient? So, if there are tentacles burst out of a closet, we could call it weird fiction. Yes. But without those tentacles, it's speculative fiction. I guess so. If you if you want to cut it that way, um, I would say weird fiction needs to approach the feeling of the uncanny. Oh. Which is the uncanny is a philosophical concept too, so that's kind of like getting you into complex waters. But yeah, I, I think I think weird fiction dislocates reality and, and yeah, and takes you close to that uncanny valley. So um, I mean, there's many things that are fantastical but don't take you uh, close to that. Many Disney movies and Pixar movies have fantastical elements, but they are not you know, bearing close to the uncanny at all. My mind is drifting to like Doctor Who and Dirk Gently. Um, you know, the Twilight Zone. I yeah, think okay. it's a really good example. Have you ever watched, you know, the old Twilight Zone episodes? Uh, some of them were explicitly scary, but some of them were not explicitly scary, and yet there was something unsettling about them. For me, it was the, the Outer Limits. I didn't, I missed the Twilight Zone, but the Outer Limits. There is nothing wrong with your television set. Do not attempt to adjust the picture. We are controlling transmission. Now, why do we feel such a strong need to define things like this? I look mm -hmm. at the Twitter wars that go on around the literary community in Canada and the U.S., and I find most of them are just arguing over what we've discussed <laughs> quite pleasantly, right? We had no telekinetics, but we did have manners today. Um, in discussing this, why do people get so angry about these topics? Well, one, one reason why it's important to provide definitions is basically the library, the librarian impetus of classifying something, figuring out where it belongs on the shelf, which is actually really important for sales because you want to know where you are on a shelf, what is adjacent to you. Uh, you know, when I said dangerous liaisons meet the force, I was 
joking a little bit, but on the other hand, that immediately places you in a specific kind of frame. Uh, we do that with books. You know, this is a new Harry Potter. This is, a, you know, Harry Potter meets, you know, The Shining or whatever. You you get these images. Harry Potter belongs on the young adult shelf, on the fantasy shelf, on the wizard school shelf. All of that helps you locate yourself and, and therefore helps sell books and also helps find books. On the other hand, we are all taxonomically inclined. I think we we want to not only for uh, financial purposes, for sales purposes, just just for our own, the sake of our own mind, we want to be able to know what something is, and where it belongs on the on the world, and what it is, and what it's not at the at the same time. People want that that point of reference. They want to be able to compare it to something they know or they're familiar with. As soon as you said, Harry Potter meets The Shining, I know what both of those those are so I can kind of combine them in my mind and get a good idea a of creation what, of the yeah. parenthetical so that you can hold on to the idea it's interesting like familiar ingredients but do you think that, that hurts us as creative people pigeonholes us yeah I wonder yeah, yeah. I, I, you know it's like I said it's it can be useful but if you um, if you are too com- Compartmentalized, I think it it can be can be problematic, especially when you're talking about genres that are being born, you know, because not all genres existed forever. You know, you look back 200 years in literature and you see that there are certain ways of writing, uh, certain categories that did not exist, uh, you know, even 100 years ago. There was no such thing. Young adult fiction, for example, is a term that had, was kind of coined and was born about 20 years ago and became really big, you know, maybe 10, 15 years ago. So if you go back in time, you're not going to find in 1935 the concept of young adult fiction. And there's many other subgenres and categories which are um, being born or they're changing, right? Um, which is true of just the novel as an object as well. Yeah, right? the novel, yeah. The, you know, the epistolary the, the novel used to be delivered in installments and that kind of thing. And so that kind of changes uh, the novel as an object. Um, but so the problem, I think, is when you become, um, uh, when you try to delineate lines that are too strong, especially in these areas where things are still fluctuating, is that you're going to leave things out or you're not going to see certain things that are interesting or important because you have imposed um, boundaries. And so that happens a lot, I think, in, in fantastical writings with literary writing. Sometimes we tend to think that uh, literary writing offers uh, nothing of value or, or things, or, or people will say, well, that was not fantastical. You know, that, that, that's, that's a common refrain with my books. That's not fantasy, right? Well, these like, are criticisms <laughs> you receive. Your book's not strange enough. Yeah, it's not fantastical enough. Like, you know, it has telekinesis, but there's like no school of wizardry. Right. But you can point them at a body of work. Can't you say, well, go read my vampire narco book? <laughs> yeah, but, but you know, when you, for example, when you view the world as um, uh, very white, very Anglo-Saxon, uh, certain ways of thinking, certain ways of the fantastical may seem to you completely alien, inappropriate, and just like it has no wizards, for example. Magic realism, which is a very Latin American thing, has no wizards. In magic realism, things just happen organically and naturally. And the element of the fantastical may be very minute, you know, um, very small, and yet it's there. There's something 
odd, you know, that, that that's going on. And so sometimes people will say, well, you know, all those magical realism writers, uh, they don't count, right? They don't count as fantastical, they don't count as weird fiction or as horror because they're doing something else, something that we're not familiar with. And I think that that can be, um, yeah, really problematic because when when you think about it, they they should count or they could belong or they could say something interesting in comparison to these other forms of writing that we have accepted as natural. I'm just trying to unpack everything you said there. Yeah. I One of my favorite things about uh, podcasting right now, Sylvia, which Dan told me would happen, he's our producer here, but I didn't know for sure, was how I would want to listen again to the answers provided to the questions so that I could really, really internalize them. I'm looking forward to listening to this podcast again because you are talking about so many things sort of at the same time as reflecting on yourself as an author. Do you think that this is, for a person who's just starting out, do they have to know and understand all this stuff? Like when you were just starting out as a, as a writer saying, okay, I just want to make something up. Did you know all this stuff? Was this all in the back brain or is this something you've learned along the way? Well, I, I did have a big body of, um, I guess, literary history because I had been reading for a really long time. And I read, like I said, a lot of the pulp authors of the 30s and the 40s. So I had kind of that, you know, I read the new wave authors that came and um, and some of the people in the 80s. So I, I had this kind of broad historical perspective of the fantastic. But obviously it has changed and evolved and I've um, come to understand some things better, I hope, uh, than I did than I did before. So I, I think having a, an overview of the field does not hurt, you know, like a broad uh, kind of bird's eye view of the field does not hurt to get you into it. But obviously you're going to learn things while you're going along. And there's some things that were that will emerge um, that were not happening when you first started reading. So, you know, when when I first started writing, um, there were almost no people of color, you know, visible minorities, whatever you want to call them, uh, visible <laughs> in, in writing um, and critiquing fiction. And then kind of began to emerge as I was as writing online. People started talking on Twitter about things and questions that, uh, that bothered them or interested them. And, and there were some discussions that uh, had... I felt never happened before, and there's some there were some questions that I had never asked me asked myself before. Um, so I think every you know just like every other artist, a writer has a journey. Uh, you start at a certain point, but then things emerge as you go as you go along. Uh, but uh, but I always recommend that uh, you know people read uh, if they want to be writers, they read very widely, and that means reading outside their genre. So even people who are like I just want to write science fiction. I believe seriously should be doing things like reading Moby Dick and uh, which is a great book. Yeah, this is a good book. Um, one of my favorite, one of my favorite, uh, we brought up Twitter a lot for some reason on this podcast, but I follow Moby Dick one sentence at a time on Twitter oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's amazing. So every day I get a sentence of Moby Dick and then after a year I've read about a quarter of it but it's a basically a science fiction book though it's about a super whale that kills everyone it is a it is really big um whale but yeah i think i think when we hear about it when we're young or um, 
or we're in school, whatever, we think it's just a story about a whale and we think that's so boring, you know, like a big whale. And and it's so it's so interesting and well constructed. And just looking at the sentences, you know, it gives me there's some writers that I envy for their capacity to write, you know, just beautiful things and, and that and you know, that's one of the books where, you know, every sentence is kind of like a jewel. You're like, oh stop. Um, but that's why I say, you know, even if you're like, I only want to write like, you know, space opera, that kind of thing is like, you should read Moby Dick. You should read things that you wouldn't think that uh, would ever be related to that and the stuff that's in the field. You should, you should read people who were extremely famous, but also people who were very obscure. Important to cross-pollinate, right? Yeah, it's important to cross-pollinate. If, if you just stay with you know with with a single thing um i I think yeah you 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 lose that kind of like diversity of you know that in biology we talk about you know it's like um working in a vacuum almost like if if you're into fantasy and all all your world includes is reading lord of the rings and watching lord of the rings and that's all you want to make i think that's going to be much less strong than if you were taking in a bit of everything, right? Yeah, if some people feel, I think, that it's a sense of distillation, like, oh, if I stay in the bubble and I just reduce, 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 then mine will be stronger. But I think that the opposite happens, right? You become the vapor that boiled off instead of the good stuff at the bottom. From hell's heart, I stab at thee. Is Hemingway's Old Man and the Sea a rewrite, a remake of Moby Dick? If it is, it's the completely opposite take on on it, I would say, because I mean, Hemingway writes in completely the opposite way, right? I mean, very sparsely, very sparse sentences, um, uh, very good sentences, but it's just a very different uh, feeling. Uh, so I would say, yeah, if it's that, it's kind of, in a way, it's kind of like the anti Moby Dick. It's, uh, it's like the same plot. It's, there's that old expression, right? It's the singer, not the song. It mm-hmm. makes you like it. So Old Man in the Sea is the short version. It's still a man and a big fish in a boat trying to come to terms with who he is as a person. Doesn't get that fish. And he never gets he it. never gets that no. fish. Chasing your obsession, right? Yeah. Chasing artwork, he said, segueing badly <laughs> towards Justin. Justin's mascot is a giant whale. Why don't you tell us about that, Justin? And that is a Moby Dick reference because... Early on, like when I, the more I drew, I found the better I was getting. And even drawings that were a month old, I thought I can do so much better than that. Um, And then when I was trying to pick kind of an icon to use as my logo and my brand, I, you know, you're kind of chasing your obsession with always writing or always drawing or always painting. Um, So I thought the Moby Dick reference was fitting. So yeah, my, my logo is a whale. So we're all chased some sort of big white whale. What are you, what whale are you chasing right now, Sylvia? What's the thing that you know you have to pursue, whether you can catch it or not? Oh God. Um, well, I think we all have uh, ticks in our writing, right? The things that keep coming back. So our, our own private obsessions and whether they're explicit or implicit. Uh, you know, one time I did a count and I realized that something like 80% of my stories had a reference to the ocean or something like that. Um, so that was like, did not realize water mattered that much. Um, and you live near the ocean. I do. So <laughs> that was kind of fitting. And I, and I always kind of wanted to live. And the last time I visited, you said, let's go for a walk by the ocean. Yeah, that's right. 
This was a surprise to you, though, that the ocean was important in your life. Uh, yeah, until I did that count, I didn't realize it mattered <laughs> that much. You know, I was like, oh, um, you know, probably because the ocean signifies freedom. Uh, where Cthulhu lives too. Yeah, and he sleeps. Right. <laughs> he sleeps under the ocean. Yes, the deep ones connection. Maybe I'm gonna like leap into it one day and just swim away. Now, I think I have a challenge for you. We went on this um, walk to an area that had been recently gentrified, and they had put in all these new expensive condos, and they looked out over the water, and uh, you know we were lamenting whether that's good or bad or the other. But I think that there's a kid somewhere that needs to sit on that bench and look down and find a few of the ancient gods' names scrawled on that bench? <laughs> Do you think that if that happened, um, by put there by you, that this could change an entire person's life? I think that the Vancouver Park Board might change my life if they find me <laughs> missing their benches. Only if they caught you, Sylvia. Only, Only if they if, listen to this podcast. Only if they listen to this podcast. How many people in Vancouver would be willing to do that? Um, yeah. Well, there was there was um, for a while around along along that seawall seawall. Um, there there are these like um, just wooden posts, and uh, they have nothing on them. But somebody started carving them with indigenous art. I don't know who it was. I just would walk by and every week or so, one of the wooden posts would be carved and it would have like, you know, a salmon and then next to it, ne then the other, you know, another week would pass and the post nest next to it would have a bear and, and things like that until like a bunch of them had uh, these kind of um, hate Hawaii inspired imagery. It looks like that. So I don't. I don't. I never knew who who did that. I I never saw any anybody doing it. But I yeah. I kind of wondered um, who does this. And also under the bridge near my home, uh, periodically somebody would do uh, would like do some kind of like um, I I don't know if it would be called graffiti art because it kind of washed off. They would do it sometimes with chalk or like just put some paper on, and they would have these like art pieces, you know, like it would be with chalk, just like this image or, or a sentence, you know, like a funny sounding sentence. And yeah, I would always kind of wonder who, who did this. <laughs> this is a dangerous conversation because we often at the studio will watch, um, like anytime there's a documentary on Netflix about Banksy or graffiti artists at the end, I'm always kind of we have to talk motivated. ourselves out of running into yeah. <laughs> the public spaces and doing this. Now, whether we should or not, I don't know. But I do think <laughs> that anyone listening to this that wants to do graffiti art by bringing obscure references to um, their favorite books, I think I think I'd be okay. If I think I'd be okay if I saw more of that around, even as a property owner, I'd be okay if someone wrote. Nartolotep so your fence my... is fair game. Is that what I'm hearing? For Cthulhu references <laughs> only. Um, Sylvia, I have uh, very much enjoyed this conversation. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been Super Pulp Science, where we talk about how genre gets made and about the hidden things under the surface of ancient waters. Um, Just a public service announcement. Graffiti is illegal. Don't get caught. But do join the fight and make comics.